This is Limitless Possibility. I'm Luke Olivier Dumablet. And I'm Yannick Maria. And what are the topics for tonight, Yannick? We have three topics tonight. Uh, I couldn't decide between all three of these, so I decided to do all three at once. So we're going to be tackling voice assistants and smart homes, over-dependence on frameworks, and revisiting the Nintendo Switch a year after the initial reveal. Ooh, but before we start, I know we have some follow-up. So on episode 75, Yannick and I reviewed Gran Turismo Sport, and we came out quite disappointed about this installment of the Gran Turismo series. And luckily for us, on November 22nd, Sony announced upcoming updates for it. So the first one, named Patch 1.06, will be released on November 27th, which is day after you should be able to hear my voice in this next patch sony will fix one of the main gripes i had about the game and it is the lack of cars yes there will be new cars in 1.06 and also on top of that gran turismo sport will receive a frequent cars update up until march 2018 which will introduce around 50 new cars and here's a sneak peek uh, two new Ferraris, a couple of Chevrolet, uh, two new Nissan Skylark Spec 2, something like, I guess, just Caroline GTR race spec, and a Mazda RX-7, and more. So uh, that is amazing. We'll be getting 50 new cars, around 50 new cars, up until uh, March 2018. The second big patch that will be planned for next month, December 2017, will fix the other main grape Yannick and I had, aka missing single-player single mode feature. So Sony and Polyphony Digital is planning to release a new single-player mode named GT League, and this mode is based on the GT mode of previous games, aka you do races offline without having to care about your driver's rating and your sportsmanship rating, I hope. You do actually have to worry about one thing, which is your player level. Uh, so there are four tiers of events, and each of them unlock every 10 player levels. Uh, so if you want to play endurance races, you need to get to level 30. Uh, but otherwise, that's pretty much the only tie-in there is with the rest of the uh, GT Sport game. Of course, also, they were quick to announce that there will be more stuff coming after March 2018, and my guess is they will do another type of another type of this type of announcement uh, closer to this uh, date. So there will be a link in the show notes about the PlayStation blog if you want to read about all of the details. But I think I'll echo what Yannick and I said, kind of our private chat, that we are super stoked about this announcement. Yeah, it really puts puts a lot of faith into the ability of Polyphony Digital to actually do good on this game because it, at launch it didn't really look that great and gradually they've been getting better however i do want to mention uh s some issues we got like the day after we reported the last episode because the day after we recorded the last episode was the second to last day of the first series of championship events and that night was really weird because i did a nation's cup qualifier and the race put me on the wrong track it mixed in uh, group three cars in a great group four race. Uh, and unsurprisingly, all the group three cars, which are more powerful, won the race. Nobody is surprised by this. And, uh, manufacturer series screwed up and all of our points were reset to zero for 24 hours. And then the next day they were back, but it didn't really inspire confidence in the entire event thing. And I basically gave up at that point. I was like, 
I have had enough of this game screwing stuff over. Um, one other thing I realized uh, to complain about uh, the championship events is I did the very last race that was available. Like, I think it was like 1.10 a.m. or something. I did the last race you could do for these events. And when I finished the race, I couldn't actually see how my rankings had changed because the events were over and they were already replaced by Season 2. And because there's no match history, I couldn't actually see anything. So the complaints I said about missing esports features actually made it so that even if you actually spent your entire week grinding on these events, you didn't actually have any way to see the results of what you did at the end of the week, which was kind of lame. Oh, it is lame. And I was super pissed uh, about the... I think we were both playing on that night that there was uh, glitches. And it seemed that it, it, it kind of switched the events. You were doing the qualifier for one, and then you end up in the race of the other. That was super strange. And... I've, it's funny because since you kind of rage quitted the game while waiting for the real championship, because we're still in the test seasons, it, I'm slowly but surely catching up on the player level, and I'll I think surpass you even if I've not completed the campaign yet. Cool. By the way, I'm at 98% completion on the campaign. Uh, I have two missions left, except they are very hard. Ooh, I think I'm at 25, 30%. I think I'm not even 30%, so 25, 28%. Uh, but I'm. Uh, Gaining some traction into the uh, racing license mode. I forgot its exact name, but it's uh, driving one school. day. Oh, driving school. Yes, I'll uh, slowly but surely catch catch you up on uh, this aspect. Uh, just have also a quick note regarding our last episode about the iPhone 10, and the quick note is to mention that iPhone delivery dates are all are greatly improving in Canada, and I think it's for uh, most. Uh, regions too. The estimated wait period after placing an order right now in the Canadian store is one to two weeks where it was three to four weeks a couple of days ago. So for all the the rumors crying about extreme storage, Apple is kind of showing them the middle finger. I think in in the end we kind of end up with the normal typical wait period after a normal iPhone launch which slowly but surely gets uh, back to normal-ish just before the holidays for normal people to just go in the store or just wait a week to make sure they can put new iPhones under the Christmas tree. Yeah, I feel like pretty much everyone who wanted an iPhone X has gotten one by now, uh, which, I mean, you can't usually say that about most iPhone releases, I feel. Uh, so it's really good to see them handle that uh, pretty well. Okay, are you ready for complaints about OLED Part 2? <sighs> I'm not sure I am, but at least this time you can complain after the fact that you've seen one, even two, but the first one was for like two 0. seconds. 0.5 seconds, yeah. Yes. Uh, so I went to the mall this weekend and I got to see a demo unit of the iPhone X. And my first impressions of it is, yeah, it looks like an iPhone screen. That is basically my opinion of it. Uh, I don't have anything particularly negative to say about it or positive to say about it. It looks like an iPhone screen. It looked a little bit off-tinted, though that may have been... Um, uh, that stupid feature, True Tone. Um, yeah. So that might have been that. Uh, unfortunately, like the demo units are, well, understandably locked to the tables. So I couldn't actually pick it up and bring it close to my face to look at text artifacts and stuff like that. So I can't really complain about those things. But like everybody should just calm down. I don't hate the screen. It looks fine. Uh, but like, it looks about as good as any other IPS iPhone, which means... Whoa, 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 you're telling other people to calm down? You should tell that to yourself. Well, 
I still have issues with LED, and this is where I'm going. So uh, we're going to talk about burn-in quite a bit, because that is one of my major concerns with this, uh, because I have been doing a lot of research into burn-in, and I have seen a lot of people who have owned Samsung Galaxy phones for six to nine months, and their phones already ex- uh, have burn-in in them. Uh, similar issues on the LG side of things. Um, and basically, one of the things that has been happening uh, recently is affordances are baked into the operating system for these OLED screens. So uh, one of the things in iOS is that floaty UI elements that were introduced in iOS 7. So anything that basically moves due to the gyroscope of the phone, uh, this is usually the icons on the home screen uh, when you have a perspective wallpaper mode. Uh, all of those things help combat burn-in because it doesn't actually keep UI elements static at all times. Uh, so that is one of the elements of the iOS 7 design that actually does benefit OLED. Uh, Samsung phones have gone a little bit further uh, in the past where uh, persistent elements on screen, like uh, on Android, they have the home back and multitasking buttons at the bottom of the screen at all times. Uh, they move them around by a single pixel every minute to try and balance the burn-in around those areas. And apparently iOS does this for persistent elements like the status bar as well. Uh, and due to the resolution of the screen, you probably won't notice it uh, unless you actually take a screenshot and then zoom in and line up your rulers, which, like, there's probably, like, Louis Mantia and some other person on Twitter who would do this, and myself. Um, so... <laughs> There's that. Uh, th- this week, there's been this meme. Everybody wants all black user interfaces on their iPhones. And I am warning you that this may backfire on you because as pleasing as it is to actually look at that, uh, burn-in is caused by uneven aging of your subpixels. And having the majority of your pixels be off per- for prolonged periods of times, time means that your burn-in may be far more apparent than if all of the pixels on screen were allowed to age in a more uniform matter. And this was one of my issues with Windows Phone. Um, one of the reasons that my grandma's name is burnt into the Windows phone is because Windows phone had a black and white user interface for the most part, and you had most pixels that were off all the time, and these pixels with my grandma's name were open, uh, were on 90% of the time, and they burnt in, and it was much more apparent than if there would have been a gray or a white background where gradually all of the subpixels could have slowly aged together and it wouldn't have been as apparent so i am just warning people if you think that your black uh oled themes are cool be very careful and all of this has basically led me to revise my opinion on oled which is i think there are lots of issues with like the samsung class of oled which is like here is an opinionated oled that looks like k-pop music videos like we talked about last week super saturated and it is a stylistic choice that i fundamentally disagree with OLED as a display technology can be fine in one context, and I'm going to lay out what this context is, and it's unfortunately a context that is less and less going to exist as we progress, and that is, if you're watching a movie, if you're playing video games that have very few UI elements that are constant on screen, in those cases, yeah, I I can hear the cases for OLED is better in these cases. The problem is as soon as anything with the user interface touches that screen, burn-in starts being a concern, and I don't like that. I really don't like that. And the problem is, things are moving more towards a persistent UI space than not. And if you have an Apple TV or all these things, like these things all have user interfaces that you have to take into consideration the impact that that will have on your OLED display. And if you are only watching Blu-ray movies 100% of the time on your television, then it sort of makes sense. Uh, 
last week we sort of had this mini argument that I didn't really complete uh, about the Apple Watch because he said the Apple Watch doesn't burn in, and I said, yeah, it, but it's true, it's true. It doesn't. Burn I know in. it's true. You know why it's true? Because it's only on eight seconds at a time. Whereas the thing that I did not say on the last episode is, for many people, the phone is the screen that they use the most throughout the day, and that has a very different usage pattern than the Apple Watch, which means that. Burn-in issues, which might not have been apparent on the Apple Watch, which is perfectly fine after two years of use for me, uh, might become more apparent. And again, it's possible that Apple has figured out the solution, and this is not going to be an issue. And if they did, good for them. But I am just saying, be wary, everyone. This could happen. Do you think my 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 opinion is reasonable, even if you disagree with it? I think now that you've experienced it, it makes it more reasonable. Okay. That was all I and... wanted to hear. Yeah, and I'm not telling you that because I want to, you wanted to hear that. I think it it is fair, and I think you were right. Uh, you're right about mm, the opinionated. I was right. Old, mm. Whoa, whoa! Not about everything. About oh. the opinionated OLED displays, and I think that's why OLED has had a bad rep on phones for so long. So maybe with Apple trying to make a more neutral OLED display, maybe it will force the competition to readjust their OLED strategy. I, I also want to point out, I have been watching people on the bus a lot this week who have OLED phones, and why the fuck is the brightness always at 100% on these Samsung phones? Like, they're blinding me and I'm halfway across the bus and they're staring <laughs> at this rectangle of light. They're going to die. Well, that's okay. That's okay. Uh, quick note about OLED. I think we'll have long-term follow-up, but still. Oh, right. I forgot I, about this. You forgot about that, but I also bought uh, a LG B7 TV uh, last weekend, just before this weekend, which is Black Friday, but the Black Friday deals were already out. So I had my eye on, on this model for a while, and I was able to get a good discount. So we'll see in a couple of years, because this is right now all like... Like all of the TV guides and TV review website are saying that the LG B, uh, the 7 series, which is the kind of the current series, but all of the model have the same panel, depending on what you like. But the B7 and the C7 are the best 4K HDR TVs on the market right now, and they are OLED TVs. So we'll see in a couple of years, but I can tell you OLED on the TV is amazing. Speaking of watching things, uh, we're going to have another episode where we watch an anime series. So this is going to be... I'm worried about this. I am worried about this. <laughs> you shouldn't be worried about this. This is going to be pretty chill. So episode 79 on December 24th, we're going to be watching the 2006 anime series Bartender, named after the, anime, uh, the manga of the same name. And you are welcome to join us to watch it. Uh, unfortunately, the show was never licensed by any foreign company, so we will be watching fan subs by the fan subbing group Lunar, which have been conveniently uploaded to YouTube and somehow Ooh. never taken down for the fast, last five years. Um, so I will post a YouTube playlist in the show notes for everyone to go watch. There are 12 episodes of 24 minutes. It's a very chill show and it is, it has some holiday spirit. Uh, so get into the holiday spirit with us. Um, and hopefully you'll find the show interesting and hopefully the episode will be interesting once we get to it. I have a confidence to make. Uh oh. Yes. Um, funny thing is last year when we did a Yuri on Ice, uh, I subscribed to Crunchyroll because of it, right? Yeah. Uh, what I just realized this month is I'm still subscribed to Crunchyroll. Maybe you should watch more anime. <laughs> Either that, or maybe I should subscribe. I should cancel my subscription if I don't really use Crunchyroll because I haven't used it 
to be honest. But we'll see. Maybe I'll rewatch You Are Nice over the holiday, spe- holiday period. It's a good show to rewatch. Yeah, it is a good show to rewatch. Anyway. Yeah, let's move to your three topics. Yeah, so we're going to start with topic one, which is voice assistants and smart homes. So I'm super excited about this topic. I am also super excited about this because this week, Amazon announced that the Echo line of products, which is made in Canada, would be expanding <laughs> globally. And among the countries that were blessed with the product line would be Japan, which is super cool for Japanese people uh, who have been twe- uh, tweeting nonstop about talking to Alexa in Japanese. And Canada, which is us, uh, which is, yay, we finally get to use this product that was made here. That's fun. Uh, is it fully made here? I know there was a team in Toronto, but I didn't know if it was fully made by this. So my, my understanding is that the Kindle team, which basically handles all Amazon hardware these days, has been based in Toronto since the beginning, and slowly they have been expanding that office. Huh, interesting. Yeah, and I so almost applied on a job there, uh, which would have been entertaining. If you are an Amazon employee from Toronto, you can send us an email. Two, two, two. Okay. Uh, so I was at work and I saw the news story and I immediately opened a private browser and ordered an Echo Plus uh, as soon as the news came out. And I've been doing a lot of research into this device that I pre-ordered uh, since then. And part of that is the smart home field because the Echo Plus, part of the introductory bundles they're doing for it, they are including a free Philips Hue bulb with it. Uh, I have never used any Philips Hue stuff. I believe you have. Yes, I have the starting kit, which contains the bridge and uh, three bulbs. I've been using it for at least two years, nearly three, I would say. Yeah, I think it started around the time we started the podcast. Right, I think so. Yeah, so that's pretty nice. I'm going to be having a Philips Hue bulb. And then I looked into sort of like, what is the Echo Plus capable of doing that the regular Echo wasn't? And one of the big features of the Echo Plus that the others don't have is that it is a Zigbee hub. Uh, so there are numerous networking protocols out there which can be used by smart home devices, and they were sort of developed in response to specific brands like Philips uh, that required the presence of a branded hub for those peripherals to be able to connect to your network. And instead of this, they developed a bunch of different protocols that would allow to bridge it. And you can sort of see where I'm going with this because I've been using a lot of plural in that sentence Yes, there are conflicting standards, unfortunately, uh, but no one is surprised by this because that's usually how standards work. Uh, but the one that's supported by Echo Plus is Zigbee, uh, which is the first time that I've actually ever seen something that actually explains what a personal area network is, because in networking classes, they keep telling you, oh, yeah, yeah, there's LAN, there's WAN, and there's PAN, and you never fucking touch a PAN in your life because <laughs> nobody tells you what a PAN is. Uh, See, I, I technically, completely forgot about t- PAN. That's funny. It technically it always like applies to Bluetooth, but people don't really see Bluetooth in that way. Uh, but Zigbee is really more low power, low bandwidth, uh, really just to be like light switch on, light switch off type of s- simple messages. It's a mesh network, so you can distribute this across your house very easily because they will repeat the signal to the next uh, smart device in line. And technically, uh, the more smart devices you have in your house, the more your mesh network is actually able to participate. Uh, so, so that's really cool stuff. Uh, one of the things that did irritate me in the original uh, Echo Plus reviews that I've read, and there are very few of them because the product uh, launched two weeks ago, and most people have been only focusing on the second generation Echo instead of the Echo Plus, which I don't understand, but okay. Um, you can't actually change the color of the Philips Hue 
light bulbs because right now the hub functionality in uh, the Echo Plus only understands brightness and on or off, which is oh. kind of strange. But that would make sense to uh, Philips release that. I don't know when was that exactly, but it was not when I bought my bridge and my starter kit, but it happened in the last few years where they uh, release a smaller, like a dumber version of their Philips U uh, products, which is only for white light bulb. Like the set I have, we can put any colors you'd like because it's an LED inside of it. But there's a cheaper version or there's cheap bulb you can buy that are only on the white spectrum. So either like white blue to warm, like to cold white or to warm white. And those are way cheaper. So I wonder if it's that same bulb that is included. But I I think it doesn't actually matter what bulb you're using. Like the actual software right now is only capable of handling those events. I'm Hmm. not talking about the included bulb in particular. Uh, or at least that's what it said in the reviews. Now, fingers crossed, uh, Amazon has been really, really good with patching the Echo regularly. In fact, every week they send you an email saying what's new on your Echo this week and new features that have come out and new skills you can install and all that stuff, which is really cool. Um, so hopefully they can patch that in. It just feels a little bit weird that like you're even bundling a Philips Hue bulb with this. And I believe it is one of the white ones that is included with it, not a colored one. Um, but you're including this thing with it, and it doesn't even support the full range of features of that device. It feels a little odd. Um, but, like, even to some degree, the Echo was a little bit undercooked when it shipped. And gradually, with those updates, it became a fabulous product that a lot of people are really enthusiastic about. And it's sort of on that enthusiasm that I decided to buy one. Because... I can't think of particular uses for this Amazon Echo thing that I would want to do it. But I have heard so much about how this has enhanced people's lives that I want to actually be able to experience it and talk about it on the show, of course. Uh, so I'm going to have one of these. And I, I'm also, it's really stupid, but I'm really excited to be like, Alexa reorder, like toilet paper or whatever. Uh, <laughs> like, that sounds like so futuristic, and I just want to try it. Um so yeah, I'm I'm excited to be playing around with this device soon. Um and I've been looking around at uh skills. Um so unfortunately like music service wise, there's only Prime Music and Spotify which is supported and technically iHeartRadio, but I don't really care so much for commercial radio. Um and I don't know if I'm going to bring back my Spotify subscription or if I'm going to subscribe to Prime. It probably makes more sense for me to go to Prime just because you get everything else with Prime in it. Uh, oh, but does it? Oh, wait, does it mean that we have Prime Music now in Canada? Yeah, it launched the same day. Oh, that's a. Oh, that's something I didn't know. So it means I have access to it. Yes, you do. And Ooh. interestingly, I played around with the Prime Music app, which. Uh, uh, for some reason, you can actually use it even if you're not a Prime Music subscriber, but you can only use it with your local music. But that's part of what I like about it is you can use this as a unified app for both Prime Music and your local iTunes library, uh, which is great because, like I've said in the past, I like using DJ software, and DJ software can only read out of your iTunes local library. Um, and now this basically lets me have the best of both worlds and not have to use two separate apps to do it, which is really cool. Um, so I, I'm leaning towards that. Uh, the only reason I'm sort of hesitant about it is because thanks to a friend of ours, uh, I have a world catalog Spotify account and have way more songs on it than anyone else does. And it would be really cool to actually be able to do that via Spotify, uh, on the echo. 
So I, I, I'm not fully decided about it, but if I'm being honest, like I'm probably going to get Prime and Prime Music is going to come with it and I'm going to use that. Uh, right, and if I recall correctly, with Prime, you could upload your own music to it and just make I, it I'm it. not sure if that part of the the product is actually available because like those were technically two separate products before in oh, the US. Right. It was like Amazon Cloud Locker for music or whatever. I forget the exact name. And there was Prime Music. And those were two separate products. And I think we never got the music locker in Canada, but we got Prime Music. So I'm not sure what the relation between that is. And to be honest, the Prime Music documentation for Canada in particular is very, very weak. It's basically like one long page with a bunch of marketing images and a sign up link for Prime at the bottom. And that's it. And there's a link to download the Mac app, which I didn't even know existed, but it looks like a web app, so it might not be great. Um, but I don't know. I, I'm leaning towards exploring all of that. I really like the idea of being able to say, like, Alexa, play jazz, and suddenly there's jazz in my room. Like, I like that. Uh, there's automatically a log of the last uh, songs that you've listened to in the Alexa app, which means that if there's a song that I really enjoy, I can go get it and then buy it on iTunes and use it in mixes if I want. So I'm really excited about getting to experience all of this. And I just wanted to share my enthusiasm for this and let people know that it's coming. And we're probably going to do a full episode on it uh, once I get it. But in the meantime, I'm just looking forward to December 5th so much. <laughs> right. And on a side note regarding uh, smart speaker, it is funny because Apple recently announced that uh, the HomePod won't make it for this year. It will only be, only be released in the first three countries they mentioned. I think it was US, UK, and Australia, if I recall correctly. But uh, all of these three launch countries will only get it in 2018. Uh, so I guess people at Amazon are quite happy about that. We'll see. But it, it was uh, interesting uh, news regarding competing, competing uh virtual assistant in smart speakers yeah also also i'm super eager to see what you'll do with this uh philips u because uh here personally uh i kind of in the recent months kind of start to be tired of my setup and i wonder it's if it's because i I am kind of forced to use the philips u app because i don't have the latest bridge that is home kit compatible oh and sadly i think the 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 sale as ship for Philips where they won't bring it back in the old hardware because they want you to buy, to buy, to buy the new bridge. So I don't think they will take advantage of buying this, uh, of uh, upgrading the old bridge via software, which was something new in iOS 11 where you could do, uh, inc- software encryption for HomeKit. And that's why I'm tempted to s- take a look at, uh, IKEA's solution for light bulbs. Uh, which uh, was f- uh, shipped recently. Uh, no, no, not the solution itself was shipped recently, but the update to the solution t- for supporting Alexa, Google Home, and HomeKit was uh, shipped recently. So that's quite interesting and also way cheaper than the Philips U because one downside of Philips solution is the bulbs are quite expensive, especially if you want all the, like the 256 colored one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, I've seen that Xiaomi has put out basically knockoff Philips Hue bulbs that are like $10 or something, uh, which is significantly cheaper. And like, there are lots of very good videos on YouTube about like how to get cheaper smart home devices that work with Alexa. But that, that that's like the thing is Alexa is really becoming the central platform for smart home stuff these days. 
and less so HomeKit. Uh, like the, the changes that Apple made to HomeKit uh, over the summer where they've sort of broadened the range of devices that can participate in the program, um, it hasn't been good enough and not enough of the products have shipped their updates uh, to allow for this. Whereas right now you can buy pretty much anything on the market and it is going to work with Alexa either out of the box or with if this and that, which is kind of amazing. I I think the reason why they did that is really to in reaction to the market where people didn't like, they had the opportunity to go to another platform and they were like, kind of screw you, Apple, we'll go elsewhere until you fix your solution, which is, I guess, good and bad at the same time. We'll see. Uh, but I heard a lot of good comments about HomeKit, so like I kind of have eager to, to try it. But at the same time, I kind of don't want to buy a new bridge, so uh, we'll see. You know what would be, would be really cool is actually if the Echo Plus had HomeKit support, and then it could just bridge <laughs> everything. That would be like yeah. the killer app because then everyone with an iPhone would buy an Echo Plus, and it would actually be beneficial to Apple in some ways to actually have this device out there. Uh, I don't know. It's something to think about that would be pretty cool. Right. The other thing also that uh, makes me worried to invest in the Philips U uh, ecosystem is uh, you could buy cheaper Zigbee bulbs. And it used to work flawlessly with them, even if Philips Philips was not officially supporting them. And uh, I think at this point, it's nearly a year ago, they released a software update for the push that removed this functionality even if the technology that Philips use is Zigbee and of course people complained a lot on the internet so they restored it but people lost confidence in in Philips to keep this support in the long run so I think I haven't heard any news that the latest update removed that again but it made a lot of their user worry that it will come back sadly so investing in Alexa and all of this might be a better solution, and we'll see. Cool. Are you ready for so topic next two? Topic? Oh, yes, I am. Okay, over-dependence on frameworks. What does this mean? Well, this is going to sound like a rant about jQuery, but in all honesty, jQuery isn't so much the problem as it is developers who have over-embraced jQuery. Oh, I think I think uh, I thought you were about to say like it will sound like uh, rant about jQuery, and it is. So uh, <laughs> no, actually, J- no. jQuery is great. So it provides a nice domain-specific language for people who aren't full-fledged developers to do fancy dynamic stuff on web pages, and that is great uh, because, uh, well, even like for experienced developers, acting directly with a DOM can be super daunting because the API it originally shipped with is kind of a train wreck that standards bodies have been trying to salvage over the last decade or so. And now people who are just like graphics design people or uh, like uh, web designers and all that stuff can actually get in on the fun and do some dynamic stuff themselves without having to make the developers do it all the time. So, like, I really appreciate that aspect of jQuery. Um, it's kind of shocking how global jQuery has become. Uh, if you look at all JavaScript libraries, jQuery has a 96.2% market share. Wow, okay, that's impressive. And it's on 73% of all websites. Shit. That's a lot of websites. Uh, in comparison, the other new hotness right now, which is React, is on 0.3% of all websites. That gives you an idea of the scale. Something can be new and hot and really popular, but it doesn't mean that it is actually 
at internet scale. jQuery is on 97% of all websites, which is mind-blowing. Um, and the problem with that is it has become so ubiquitous that a lot of JavaScript developers out there only know how to do things within the confines of jQuery or by reaching out to jQuery plugins that they find in the wild online. And I find that this is a problem in practice. Um, like, we have been recently looking for new developers, and uh, part of looking for those developers, I, like, if I was in charge of the hiring process, I'm not, uh, I would be asking questions that would be proving that they can demonstrate JavaScript skills beyond the usage of jQuery. Um, a lot of people will think in this notion of, like, what is in the jQuery UI? What is in this toolbox that I can use to do something in three to five lines? And the problem is, like, you can do a lot of stuff with that. Like, jQuery is a good tool to have in your tool belt. But the problem is, at a certain point, like, you, you can't be using a hammer for everything, right? Uh, and the issue is when you start thinking about more ambitious uh, design problems. Like, if you're designing rich client-side tools for real, like, enterprise problems, you aren't... Well, it's going to be a mess to do it with jQuery for the most part, and you're not necessarily going to have the out-of-the-box thinking that is necessary to accomplish these things in a web environment, because a lot of out-of-the-box thinking is necessary in web development. Like, you can do a lot of crazy stuff on the web, but it's not going to be obvious how, and it's going to feel like a lot of hacks, but, like, Newsflash web development as a whole is a pile of hacks. Like, I, I, I don't, I don't think I'm teaching anyone anything here, but it is a miracle that the internet works as well as it does most of the time. And people have built a lot of tooling around web development, especially in the recent years, to try and make it less of a hacky process. Uh, even though ultimately behind the scenes, a lot of the things that these big frameworks are doing are very hacky in nature, like React. Um, but, for the most part, it works, so nobody complains. Uh, and, like, uh, there's another sort of analog to this, more in the native development p part of things, which is you don't really hear people call themselves Objective-C developers or Swift developers anymore. You actually hear people identify more with the platform than they do with the language they use. Uh, so you hear people say, I'm an iOS developer, I'm a Mac developer. And they might have very, very deep knowledge of what is going on in UIKit. And then they go to write a Mac app and they're like, what the fuck is NSL? Um, <laughs> relatable experience. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure it is. Yeah. But uh, we are becoming so dependent on frameworks that I feel like people are either afraid to venture out into what is under the framework to get a more general sense of what is going on, and that that makes them more versatile going forward, or they just aren't interested in learning. And that that is a completely other problem, which is where, like, I feel good in my uh, pillow fort of jQuery, and I don't want to leave this pillow fort because I'm comfortable here, and everything outside this pillow for it is scary, so unless there's a library on GitHub that I can download and include in my project to do this thing for me, I'm not going to do it. And I'm going to use more traditional, uh, like, Web 1.0 style technologies to do it. Um, and I think we need to embrace experimentation. I think that a lot of what is going on with reactive uh, view frameworks, we've talked about it quite a bit recently, uh, well, throughout the lifetime of the show, that I think 
there are a lot of alarm bells ringing everywhere when I look at reactive view frameworks, but I understand the appeal of it. And for certain types of applications, it is absolutely wonderful to work with. Um, and I think web developers, especially people who are like ingrained in the jQuery lifestyle, need to open their eyes more to what is out there to get a greater sense of what is possible on the web today and to advance the average of web development forward. Because right now, like, there is some state-of-the-art stuff going on, but I think the average web application is not necessarily a, as great a place as it could be if we weren't locked into these workflows of being really dependent on jQuery. How does that sound to you? <laughs> um, I'm not completely lost, but uh, it's kind of not my world. It's funny, because every time we talk about this, I understand especially what you said about uh, the main dependency about one way of thinking and that for sure can apply to my world which is more ios native stuff and i think I, a good example that i can relate to is af networking i think <laughs> for the past five i forgot how old is it i think five to six years like a lot of people are just like Assuming, oh, I need network, so I can't use Apple framework because they're so complex. I'll use AF networking, which in recently, which starting iOS 7 is kind of a thin layer on top, what, uh, on top of the cool NSURL session. I know there's a couple of, there was a couple of big bugs in NSURL session in iOS 7 and 8, but I think most of them are, are fixed now and there's less and less value to use a library like AF networking compared to when we were forced to do network using NSURL connection, which was way more complex to do simple stuff. I'm going to reveal a little bit of my hand right now, uh, which is <laughs> which is that I am trying to push internally at my company to move more into uh, higher fidelity client-side interfaces because I think we're a little bit behind on that and the technology is mature enough for us to actually be providing better experiences to our users by using these things. And one of the things that irritates me is that for a long time in our company, it has been the default reaction to if we need to write some custom code, we're going to write this custom code as a jQuery plugin. And that frustrates me because, first of all, a lot of the jQuery plugins that we've developed internally use jQuery, which means that we have this code that is dependent on jQuery anyway. And then like we would have to basically refactor all of these modules into generic things that use the DOM API or maybe scrap them entirely if we can't write to the DOM API, which a lot of reactive view frameworks and that stuff don't allow you to do. Um, and I think if we just wrote this stuff as generic JavaScript, it would still work with jQuery just fine. It's just that we would have more flexibility going forward to actually be reusing this stuff uh, in our future code if we change elements of our stack than we do now, where we are basically writing all of our code directly to jQuery, and it's becoming bigger and bigger technical debt down the line. And, like, of course, since I have a bit of an agenda, it sort of pisses me off. <laughs> uh, and I'm not going to stop using jQuery in my own code just because I have this philosophical thing. Like I'm using it when it's convenient, but uh, it's still sort of irritating to me that like there's this practice that has been sort of written into the other people's brains that if you write code, you write it as a jQuery plugin, and then everything is going to be great. Um, so yeah, that that's sort of what's been on my mind recently. 
uh, about that topic. Right, and it's, it is hard to change those cultures because usually those cultures are ingrained into people. And, you know, humans don't like change. And it is, I think it is something that I need to put as like a big board in front of my monitor sometimes because it is frustrating to try to change stuff for the better or what you think is the better. And it, you have to fight with people just because people don't want stuff to change. And especially... And one of the more radical things, though, is like, if you consider what basically jQuery is, jQuery, for the most part, like the most used parts of jQuery are DOM manipulation for the base. Like, you're, there's a selector engine in there, which basically takes your CSS selector, finds the node that corresponds to that CSS collector, and then lets you manipulate that node. And if you look at how uh, functional reactive programming attempts of doing uh, UI development work... They are basically, no, sorry, you cannot touch the DOM because this is functional. Therefore, you do not fuck with the data. Otherwise, it will fuck with the function and you're going to get bad results. And I think it is too radical of a switch if you're taking a culture that is all in on jQuery to tell them, oh, yeah, by the way, everything you know about how to do JavaScript because you've only ever done jQuery is in the garbage now. Because we can't do DOM manipulation, and now you have to learn to adapt to this reality where everything is done in a functional manner. Like, it feels like they're relearning how to develop for the web, which I think it, it's too radical of an approach. You can't really force those frameworks in in those kinds of environments. Uh, and there are certainly, like, frameworks that are better suited to this. So I'm going to admit something else. I, sn- I snuck in a functional reactive view framework into our application this week. Uh, I snuck in riot.js, which I chose that specifically because it is the only one of them that is cooled with DOM manipulation. So stuff will not implode if I actually put this in our application and someone else has to maintain it, which is very important. Uh, and we had a very complex problem that we needed to be able to solve in a reasonable amount of time. And being able to do that with manual DOM manipulation was going to have me tearing my hair out and probably spend two more weeks than I would have spent if I had just used RiotJS, which is what I did. And now everything works basically perfectly, and I spent a day working on it instead of maybe a week, a week and a half. And like I think those paradigms, being able to use the best tool for the job when appropriate, is more important than having the uniformity of using jQuery everywhere. And that's more or less like the whole premise of this topic is like, do not institutionalize around your frameworks. Uh, try to have gl- wide global knowledge of what your language is and what your toolkit is, and then use the best tool for the job. And hopefully those tools will be compliant with each other. Uh, otherwise, you're going to have a hard time. Um, and just try to bring the quality of your web applications up and that's what i've got for this topic wow so what is the last topic then revisiting the nintendo switch one year after the initial reveal i believe last year it was either late october or early november we got the first trailer for the nintendo switch and we wouldn't actually know much about the nintendo switch until the january event that i went to um but It's basically been a year since we've seen the first pictures of this thing, and I thought it would be interesting to go look at how the Switch was received by consumers, how the Switch is being received and also treated by the media, and how the Switch is being received and treated by me. (laughs) Most importantly. (laughs) uh, Of course. Right. Uh, 
And of course, you're a Switch owner as well. So, uh, yeah, kind of indirectly Switch owner, let's be honest. Uh, you are in a yeah. Switch household, let's say that. Yes, that's, that's the better, uh, way to call it. Yeah. So you are very, you are very aware of what the Switch is like because there is one in your house. And I yes. am significantly less aware of what it's like because you brought it to my place once and we played one, two switch and looked like idiots in front of the window. Uh, uh that was funny. Come on. It was we hilarious. Like well, we did look yes. like idiots, but it was worth it. Um, <laughs> okay. That's good. That's a good way to put it. Yeah. Uh, so let's start with consumers. I think it's safe to say that the switch is a pretty good success. Yeah. I think in uh rating success, I would put it even as I as, as that. Yeah. So they're basically selling these as, quickly as they can make them more or less um which is a great thing to hear because nintendo was not doing so well during the wii u era uh i think like there was maybe one year where this they were supply constrained for christmas and then never again uh yeah i think it would make sense that it would be the launch of the wii u yeah something like that uh we were all afraid about like oh no it's going to be launched in march but turns out didn't matter uh they had a very good plan for strategically deploying new games every couple months so that there was always something for people to get their hands on and experience which is nintendo at its best when they can plan those kinds of things however right now my big question mark is okay that's cool but what about after the holiday season what happens then right now the roadmap after the holiday season is sort of completely blank space for me how do you feel as someone who's a little bit more connected to the Switch scene? Um, that's interesting. You made me realize just now that I think we, Tony and I, um, I guess, I guess they is starting to have rumors about the next Pokemon to be on the Switch, which will make Tony super interested about it. But, uh, the latest Pokemon game we just released, was just released last week and it was on the 3DS. And I think that was the main the last kind of big game on the 3DS. But my point is, after this release of Super Mario Odyssey, I don't know any games that I would like to play on the Switch. I mean, I, I know that there are games coming for the Switch, like there's Shin Megami, Ten Shin Megami Tensei Five. there's uh, Octopath Traveler, which is this Square Enix adorable uh, JRPG with uh, great music that sort of looks like Romancing Saga. There's uh, there's going to be a Fire Emblem game at some point, but like all of these things, I think only Octopath Traveler has a release date, and I think that's technically a download game, not a retail game. But I'm not entirely sure. I would say, I would say at this point, what I would like to see in 2018 from Nintendo is really a commitment and starting to communicate their plan to move from the way they are right, the way they used to be, which is home console, portable console, to the Switch strategy. And I know at first they were, they, they were like kind of cautious of not saying that the 3DS will die because the 3DS was a good success in the past few years. But I think everybody knew and it's Nintendo started to hint that the 3DS it's, is on its last legs and that Nintendo will move into a, like a one console strategy. And I want to start to see that plan. Like I want to know, even if I'm not, I won't care that much about it, but I know Tony will. Like I want to know when, Will the Pokemon game be released on Switch? What are like, we just got Animal Crossing on the phone. I'm expecting to have an Animal Crossing, like a fully fledged Animal Crossing game on the Switch at some point. Which I, sh I should point out that there wasn't even one on the Wii U, which is, 
I, uh, telling. Yeah. So I do, and there was some on the Wii, right? There was always a desktop version and uh, on uh, on the console. Yeah, since '64, there's always been a console version in parallel, aside from the Wii U. Right. So there's there's still a couple of games that I'm waiting. Like I think an example is there's ru- starting to have rumors that Phoenix Wright, one of my favorite game on the DS. I think the main reason why I've got a DS and a 3DS. This game will get a Switch release at some point, and it's kind of a remaster slash deluxe collection. It's basically like, the mobile versions repackaged onto Switch, right? And I do, and I'm sure I'll buy it. For me, like a Phoenix Wright game is an insta buy, and I'll buy it and play for it. And the other thing that I have on mine is there's going to be a big update coming soon for Splatoon, kind of the same type of big update we were waiting for Gran Turismo Sport. But except that, there's kind of nothing missing. Uh, of course, I need to play to Odyssey, which I haven't done yet. Uh, I only saw Tony play to it, and it, it is just amazing. So I think right now they have a good, strong catalog, but they need to continue showing to us their commitment to that strong catalog. And I think what we start to see right now is there's more like typical, like, external non-Nintendo games starting to show, like the Coast Company starting to show what they'll do with the Switch. Which is interesting on its own because with the Wii U, they kind of flew it like it was some kind of like bad monster. Well, I I don't really have that kind of optimism for the Switch with third-party developers yet. And the reason for that is that the majority of the games that are announced on Switch right now from third-party developers were announced at the original Switch reveal. Like, not all of those games are out yet, and we're still waiting on them to manifest themselves. And aside from that, there have been indie games that have been announced, but not really, like, retail games that you would pay 80 bucks for. Uh, there have been very few of them from third parties, and that is really worrisome. And some of the games that were even announced during the launch uh window uh reveal have just disappeared and are no longer announced for the switch which is strange and i think like i think a good rule of thumb for consoles is wait 2 years into the uh the system launch and then there was go- there's probably going to be enough games for it to be interesting to buy for the average gamer um it's funny because my brother just followed your advice without realizing because he bought a ps4 slim today and he was always waiting for the price to go down and usually in like the the sony and microsoft consoles the the time where the price really strongly goes down is maybe two or three years after the original release uh, for sony it's when the slim is at least one year old and now you see great price on it and you are sh- sure that there will be a great catalog of oh, not a great but a, and a big amount of games in the games catalog yeah definitely um so yeah we're gonna have to see about the third-party developers thing i am hoping that this year e3 is going to be super lit because last year like the switch had just come out at e3 and developers had not really they, they were still cautious of the switch because it wasn't clear if it was going to be a blow away success Next year, E3, hopefully we can get some signs that there is strong third-party support coming to the platform, and then maybe the Switch can feel like it's competing with the PS4 and the Xbox One for games again, because right now, it's pretty much just Nintendo games, and there's going to be a section of the market which is fine with just Nintendo games, 
but there is also a big chunk of the market, which is I need something else on this platform to get my fingers on. And I think it's interesting if you look at the consumer response, there has also been like this sort of movement of I don't care how old this game is, please port it to Switch because I want to play it on the go, which is very interesting. And we've been seeing this with like um Doom, which I think is technically two years old by now. Um, which got right, which got a pretty well, I, I would say a, atrocious Switch port, but it's actually being praised because it's not as horrible as people thought it would be, which is weird backhanded compliment. Uh it's 720p. No, no, it's not 720p. Sorry, it's like 540p version of Doom at half the frame rate it is on other consoles where it's running at 1080p, but okay, sure, but it's portable, so people are more willing to accept it. And this sort of leads me to the next place I wanted to go, which is it is very hard to judge the Switch because what people want out of it varies because it is trying to be two things at once. It is trying to be a handheld system, which I would argue it is very good at, except maybe for battery life. Um, but other, and it's a bit big, but otherwise it sort of really seems to be doing well at the being a handheld part. And then there's the being a home console part, which is where it looks really, really bad because its competition has released its second generation of consoles, which is capable of doing like more than six times the resolution that the average game on the Switch is putting out, basically. And it's starting to look dated as a home console again. And how are people going to be willing to tolerate this going forward? I don't know. It really depends as if most people are trying to play it as a handheld system or as a... uh home system and i mean like usually how is tony playing the switch is he playing handheld or is he playing on a tv um right now just before we bought the tv it was mostly handheld for sure okay uh but i think it might change uh slightly with the big tv um, because he was eager to uh, eagerly awaiting the new tv to try it and we tried it and of course it is amazing because the TV is amazing, but you start to see those uh, resolution problems, especially on a 4K TV. You do realize that stuff that is below 1080p is kind of really like fuzzy, as fuzzy edges. You see the smaller resolution of it. It still looks amazing. Like it's amazing to see so much details on Mario and Odyssey. But at the same time, you're right, where I can just right now boot up my old PS4 normal size and have 1080p HDR on the three years old console. Yeah, definitely. And I do think that most of the people that, like, from what I know, and of, of course, Tony is quite influenced in my opinion on that, but yes, he's been playing it in, uh, during his, uh, commute. But I think the main way he plays it on Endel is just around the house, around the apartment. We go to family, friends, and he just plays with it. So I think this NL part is, I think people will accept some trade-off if they can play the same game everywhere. And I, I, and I think that's what we discussed in our main, uh, our, uh, Switch episodes is, is there enough people that what they'd like is just a console they can have with them every time all the time is that enough of a market for nintendo to succeed and after not even a year it's still early to tell but there's good signs 
I don't know if Nintendo fully released a sales number of it, but at least they are estimating that after the first year, they will be able to beat the Wii U, which was a, it's, of course, it's not a good scale, but at least it is showing that it's better than the Wii U, which is somewhat reassuring. At least we know that we won't have another Wii U for this generation. Yeah. Uh, there's two things I want to bring up. The first is a surprising omission of games, uh, which is Super Smash Brothers is not on Switch. And the Switch is trying to market heavily that it is the local multiplayer machine of choice. This feels wrong. Even as a person that really does not like Smash, I totally agree with the statement. Smash, for all of the people I know, like especially since the Switch is kind of targeted at people of our age, we grew up playing Smash either on a GameCube or an N64, playing it with friends. So being able to re-experience this on a modern console, I'm sure there's a big market of Smash fans that would like to do that. Yeah, and I'm not even saying like, make a whole new Smash game. I'm saying you could literally just port Smash 4 to Switch and offer maybe like an extra year of DLC releases for it afterwards. And I think people would be fine with that. Uh, Because right now it's going to be embarrassing next summer at Evo when, well, I guess it's always been embarrassing at Evo because they're still (laughs) playing fucking Melee on GameCubes on CRT TVs. But uh, Smash 4 is going to be played on Wii U on the stage. And that doesn't seem like a great move and like Nintendo in recent years has been sponsoring the Smash tournament at Evo and I don't know what they're going to do this year if the Switch is out it, it's very strange um I guess technically there was an Evo when the Switch was out because it was in July so I guess it already happened but it's going to be even stranger next year like if there's nothing out by then um, so yeah, I, I don't know about that. Maybe they could announce it like early in the year and ship it like in May or something and then have that be played at Evo. Uh, I don't know. It, it's very strange that Smash is not there. And I understand from a logistical point of view, like, um, Sakurai has basically said, yeah, I'm sort of tired of doing Smash games. And it's possible that this has been sort of the reason why there's not a Smash 4 port. But at the same time, if it's just a Smash 4 port, you're not doing new design work on uh on the actual game you're really just repurposing existing code so why not do it uh the other thing is if if it wasn't clear enough that nintendo basically baked in we are always going to be last place on tech specs uh into their business strategy only having the switch and not having another switch SKU that is more powerful and is able to compete with ps4 pro and xbox one x basically proves that they have given up on tech specs and they are always going to be behind and you're going to have to accept it because it's sort of bullshit like when they were claiming oh yeah the switch is a home console first and a handheld system second that's why we're keeping the 3ds like bullshit you have a system that is way better as a handheld system than it is as a home system you should be marketing it as a handheld system and then figure out a way to either bring out a separate SKU that is better for as the home console or figure something out. Like, I think the rumors that led up to the Switch was that the Switch was going to be a family of products that could behave either as a handheld or as a uh, home console. 
And right now, what we ended up getting is basically like this compromised device that is one really, really well and sort of crappy at the other one. And it would be nice if Nintendo could find a way to actually be good at both at once. I I have a, a small problem with the fact that it is crappy as a home console. And I think the reason you say that is really because you compare it with the others. Who's not going to compare it? No, I know. And that's at the same time, I understand why it is totally fair. But as the product itself, ignoring the resolution aspect of it, it is a nice home console. It, uh, it is not the most powerful one. And if you think that, and for a lot of people, home console should be the most powerful one. But in that aspect, a home console is the most powerful one. It's called a PC in my book. Like even as a home console player, I understand that if I want the most powerful computer-ish, I will just get a PC as a quote-unquote own console. So in itself, if you ignore resolution, and I know it's a big ask to ask to ignore resolution, the Swift by it, the Switch by itself is a good own console. I think this is a good compromise. The games are good, but I disagree that it's a good home console. And I think you sort of made my point for me, which is where I was going with this, is Game development in 2017 is a very different from game development. Well, console game development in 2017 is very different from how console development was 10 years ago. And that's because the PS4 Pro and the Xbox One X have basically set up this expectation that now console games are more like PC games where you are targeting multiple hardware configurations at once. And if that is becoming a standard part of the console industry, it becomes beneficial for Nintendo to think, hmm, well, if everybody is doing this for their games anyway, maybe it would be beneficial to have a Switch SKU that is more handheld focused and a Switch SKU that is more home focused. And we can have the home one actually behave like an Xbox One X and actually like be good spec wise compared to the competition. And then the games will magically scale down when you play them on the handheld skew. And I think that's an approach that can work. I think the fact that Doom scales really, really well in particular, uh, like on PC, you can play Doom at a high frame rate on relatively terrible PCs. And that is sort of what enabled the Switch to actually be able to do it because it is slightly lower than the lowest PC settings. And you've got the high end where Doom looks amazing at 4K with uh, an AMD graphics card that supports the name of the the thing that I can't remember. Uh, the not metal thing. I forget the name. Um, but yeah, uh, whatever the AMD metal equivalent is, if you actually use that on a good AMD card, like it blows your mind how good Doom not only looks, but how quickly it responds and all that stuff. And like, Games in 2017 are being designed with this scaling in mind because often they're going to target the PC anyway and there's multiple SKUs on all the other consoles. So if all the other consoles are doing it, sort of like the online subscription fee thing, if all the other consoles are doing it, why aren't we profiting from this? Nintendo could just make Switch for home and it is a better Switch that stays docked at home and you you aren't able to take it with you. But that's part of the compromise you're making to have better graphics. And I think that would still sell really well. Because ultimately, like you said, the reason you consider the Switch to be a good home console is because it has good games. And I think people would like good games and good graphics. And right now, like the market is perfect for Nintendo to capitalize on that by making a better home system. Yeah, I, I think what I'll end on, I think you make a good point. Uh, I think hopefully, and I think Sony and Microsoft kind of understood that is they do not need to do 
what the new 3DS was. I think what is the success of the PS4 and PS4 Pro and the Xbox equivalent is they're bringing you 4K and it, since we're in a transition between HD to 4K it makes sense that the game on more or less the same performance on both consoles it's just that the new console gives you better resolution and if that's what you're thinking that Nintendo should do then I do agree it does make sense what I don't want them to do is to make make a switch for ohm more powerful just for the sake of it being more powerful if it's really for if the only reason why it's more powerful it's to bring you more resolution while keeping like 60 fps like any switch games shipped right now then that does make sense as a strategy cool um i want to talk a little bit about the media um just because like i think a lot of people in the media were very skeptical of the switch going in and i think like there there were basically like two extremes there were like the switch is never going to work because you look at the handheld market before the switch and it looked very dire and it turns out that what people were missing about the handheld market is actually quality games how about that um uh like they they were out on 3DS but they were so behind on what people expect out of graphics and Switch basically caught up to what people's expectations were, and I think that's very good. And there's the whole local multiplayer thing, which is apparently doing much better than I had expected. One of my big worries when we saw the first trailers for this was, oh no, this platform is betting too much on local multiplayer, and I don't think people are going to buy into that. Turns out people are buying into it a lot. A lot of my friends are meeting up regularly and playing the Switch together. Uh, unfortunately, they are on the other side of the country, so I can't join them to play with them, but looks like fun. Uh, <laughs> and I, I think it, it, it was the good play to make. It clearly, like, it was the gimmick that they were going for with the Switch, uh, unless you were counting, like, uh, that weird thing they did with the Ultra 3D, uh, Ultra Rumble or whatever it was called, like, Super Rumble. I don't remember. What was the name of that thing? <laughs> I'm not sure what you're talking about right now. You know the thing where you're shaking the Joy-Cons and you can feel the ice cubes in it? Like the not-taptic oh, engine. Oh, the rub- Rumble HD? Rum- HD, Rumble? HD Rumble, yeah, that's what they called it. Wow, such a memorable name. Which is a feature that was used in one game and never again. <laughs> right, which is the game we played together. Yeah, 1-2-Switch. Um, yes. Yeah, like, it, clearly like that was not the gimmick that they built the whole system around uh, the gimmick of the local multiplayer seems to have been much more successful, which again makes the omission of smash to be even more glaring. Um, so I think it worked great. Uh, I think a lot of people in the media were not expecting this to be as good of a success as it was. And now they are biting their tongue and they're like, yeah, everybody wants everything on the switch. And uh, there's sort of this weird polarizing reaction, which is you have the tech specs, people who are wow this platform looks like you put vaseline on a pc monitor and play doom at 720p uh, (laughs) which is true um but at the same time it's also great the switch is allowing an entire other audience of people to experience doom that they would not have experienced otherwise like the profile of the average nintendo buyer is very different than the profile of a ps4 owner or a pc gamer like especially pc gamer uh and I think that they are allowing people to expose 
different kinds of games to that audience than they normally would be exposed to. And I think that's great. However, from a more hardcore gamer perspective, it's sort of weird to see people suddenly act like Stardew Valley is a thing when it's been out for basically a year and a half, two years on PC. And you're like, why are you freaking out? This game has been out forever and now it's on Switch and people are acting like it's the greatest thing ever. Uh, it's very strange to see that kind of reaction and to hardcore gamers in particular, in particular, it's kind of jarring because if you ignore those sort of ports, there's, and you look at the upcoming roadmap of Switch games, like it looks like there's nothing coming and it's scary. Either it's scary or they bring us with a good surprise. Hopefully, the latter. Fingers crossed. Um, so, I guess we should end this with... Whoa, 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 whoa. We can't end this topic without me asking the question. Well, I was. I think I was going to ask it to myself, but you can go ahead. Ooh. Oh, but no, you can't steal that from me. So, Yannick, with, after all of this discussion about the Switch and about nearly a year of the Switch being on the market, are you planning to buy one? Hopefully it's yes, hopefully it's yes, hopefully it's yes. So planning to buy, I would say, is a difficult thing to answer. What I'm saying is there are games that interest me on Switch, and I will not buy a Switch until those games are out. But those games have to be good, and I don't know if they're going to be good. So that is what I'm waiting on. I'm waiting for reviews of the games (sighs) I'm excited about before buying a Switch. Because otherwise, if the games I want aren't out on the switch like you can get burnt like this there are people who bought nintendo consoles for two generations waiting for a game and eventually what ended up happening is microsoft bought rare and it came out on the xbox 360 (laughs) do you want to be the person who bought an n64 and a gamecube to not get the game and then have it come out on xbox 360 no you don't so if you've seen those people before you are very wary of buying a system before the games you actually care about are out and same thing for last guardian poor john syracusa (laughs) oh my goodness oh my goodness i'm actually amazed that that game came out but whatever maybe what we could end on is the list of game you are waiting for actually let me open up my wish list on backloggery so i'm going to have the full list of games that I am looking forward to on Switch, which is actually more than you would expect. Um, I'm waiting. For oh, we'll be surprised. And are some of them out already? Yeah, some of them are out, but like it still doesn't feel worth it. Um, let me scroll down. Saturn games. No, but um, then my follow-up question regarding that is more like of the game that were that are are out already like are those are thumbs up or thumbs down like meaning that you were expecting them to to be a reason to buy a switch and did you remove games that you expected to be a reason to buy a switch and remove them from a list because in the end after the reviews they were not well so, so what's actually interesting is funnily enough my switch list and my wii u list are side by side on this layout of course and i have a wii u list because like the I basically put stuff on whatever system. Like, even if I have no intention of ever buying that system, I put them on my list just so I'm reminded they exist and can maybe consider playing them one day. Um, let's see. I have a 3DS list. That's funny. Um, yeah, so let's look at Switch. I have Azure Striker Gunvolt, which I believe is coming out very soon in retail. It's basically a compilation of 3DS downloadable games that are very good by Inti Creates, which are 
very similar to the Mega Man Zero series, uh, which I like very much. So that is, I think it's out in Japan, but coming like within weeks uh, in North America. There's fast, like should should be out for the holiday period here. Yeah, something like that. Uh, fast RMX, which is a Wii U port of a game that I would have bought on Wii U if I had uh, gotten one. A real Fire Emblem game for Nintendo Switch. Uh, I am a big Fire Emblem fan, and I, they have announced that they are making one for Nintendo Switch, but that is all they have said. Right, it's just Fire Emblem Switch. Yeah. We don't know the title. S- sometime it's in coming. 2018. Uh, I have Fire Emblem Warriors on here. Uh, I'm not a big Warriors fan, but since I'm a Fire Emblem fan, I'm kind of obligated to check it out. Uh, technically, this is out on New 3DS, which means I could buy it, but Zelda Warriors on New 3DS was such a trash fire that I would not risk it, and I am basically waiting for this to... Well, it, it's out on Switch. It came out a couple of months ago, I think. Uh, Mario Kart 8 Deluxe. Metroid, I agree. Metroid Prime Agreed. 4 is on here, because Metroid Prime is basically one of the reasons I got a GameCube. And it is a game I spent way too much time in, and the atmosphere in that game is fantastic. And if Metroid Prime 4 can be as good as Metroid Prime 1, which I am not entirely sure it can be, uh, that would be cool. Uh, missing in here, in this list, uh, there's that Octopath Traveler game that I talked about earlier in Shin Megami Tensei 5, uh, which I forgot to put on my list. There's Splatoon 2 at the bottom here. So most of these games are out. Basically, the only one that isn't out the only two that aren't out on this list are Azure Striker, Gunvolt, and Fire Emblem for Switch. It still doesn't feel like enough stuff, though. Oh, interesting! Because to me, to me, I start to understand that the main the the main flipping game would be Fire Emblem, and it has to like, be good, it's... which is a, a big condition. Um, Meaning that the last few releases were not that good. For no, that's not it. Uh, actually, like the last one, I think is my favorite uh, Fire Emblem game thus huh. far. I haven't completed it yet, though, because it's hard. But um, the thing is, like, there were home console versions of Fire Emblem on the GameCube and I think the Wii, and they are not to my liking, which means if the Fire Emblem on Switch is more like the GameCube and Wii versions, I'm going to be more frustrated than if they went with more of a 3DS approach. Um, so I'm looking forward to seeing what that looks like, uh, really. Honestly, probably the game that is going to get me to buy one in the end is going to be Shin Megami Tensei Five, because I have never... Well, that's not true. I've actually played one uh, Shin Megami Tensei game that was not a Persona game before. It was Soul Hackers on 3DS. Unfortunately, the problem with Soul Hackers is it was a port of a 90s era Shin Megami Tensei game, and it was quite brutal in terms of difficulty, so I never got around to finishing it. But Shin Megami Tensei 5 should be up to norm, uh, to modern standards, so I don't see why I wouldn't want to play it. Um, hmm. And that has been announced, but not released. Yeah, it was one of the launch announcement titles. And we still haven't heard anything new about it. No. And one of the things that would have been interesting is, uh, we've talked multiple times in the past about Monster Hunter on the show. Monster Hunter has been a Nintendo-exclusive for all of the 3DS's lifetime. And what ended up happening is uh, they split the series into a subseries. So there's Monster Hunter World, which is coming out on PS4, and there's still the main Monster Hunter games, which they haven't announced the next main Monster Hunter game, but it's sort of implied that that will continue on Switch. 
So depending how that turns out, I might actually be considering to get the next real Monster Hunter game on Switch. Because I was considering getting one for uh, Monster Hunter Double Cross on Switch uh, earlier. Um, like, we had even talked about it on the podcast. We did. But, like I like I said, like, the only new stuff I would be getting by getting Double Cross on Switch is harder difficulty content, and I still haven't finished the hard difficulty content that I have in my non-Double Cross version of Monster Hunter Cross. So I could just do that and then do whatever. But, like, right now my social circle, my gamer social circle is betting heavily on Monster Hunter World, and my entire Destiny clan is bored of Destiny 2 and wants to play Monster Hunter World. So <laughs> if Monster Hunter World ends up being the big game that I think it'll be, maybe people won't even care about the uh, the mainline Monster Hunter games on Switch. Um, so that is to be determined. Again, so right now... So that's a 10-minute Yeah, it's that's a 10-minute minute minute answer as to why I'm not buying a Switch now. And like, No, no, it's a 10-minute answer that meant... Luco, stay optimistic for 2018. I mean, if there are good games coming out, I'll buy one. Yeah, duh, exactly. I'm picky. Like, Mario Odyssey. Uh, oh, I think we've, we've seen that in the past episodes. Yes, you are. Like, p- people don't understand this. They're like, how can you not be excited for Zelda? I don't like 3D Zelda games. How are you not excited for Mario Odyssey? I don't like 3D Mario games. Like, okay, please release something that is in my genres that I like. Please don't remind me that he didn't like Galaxy. Oh, Not just man, Galaxy. That's... 64 is trash. I'm sorry. Oh, man. Okay, we need to end this uh, this podcast now. And, and this train wreck before it derails even further. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> yes. But no, I understand. And yes, 10-minute answer for me is just saying, Luco, be optimistic. If Nintendo is on the right path and continues to be, I'll get Actually, a Switch. Actually, we'll I, I, I found the answer. I found the answer. If you want me to insta-buy a Switch... There are two answers. There's a joke answer and there's a real answer. Okay, I want the joke answer. I don't care about the real answer. So the joke answer is Gran Turismo 4 on Switch. Okay, what's the real answer? The real answer is get Sega to do F-Zero GX on the Switch. Please, 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 please. I have a fucking Wii in my closet that only exists to play F-Zero GX. I could get rid of the Wii. Just please make an HD version of F-Zero GX, I beg you. Okay, and on that note, let's wrap it up. So uh, you'll be able to find uh, show notes for this episode at limitlesspossibility.net slash 77. If you'd like to see our previous episodes in all of our catalog of episodes, you can go to limitlesspossibility.net. You can find also the... you can also find the show on Twitter. That was hard to say. I don't know why, but you can also find the show on Twitter at at limipo underscore podcast. That's L-I-M-I-P-O underscore podcast. You can also find myself trying to beg Yannick to buy a switch on Twitter at at Lucanush. That's L-U-C-C-O-N-O-U-C-H-E. And you can find Yannick at Sakurina, S-A-K-U-R-I-N-A. Please tell Yannick on Twitter to buy a I'm switch. I'm not going to buy a switch. Please. And see you in two weeks. See you in two weeks.